your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're still in that chapter. Um, sermon series. This sermon series, man, it was all Pat's idea. <laughs> it was a few months ago. And uh, I am so very glad that the Holy Spirit just moved on his mind and moved on the pastor's mind to take us through this book. This book has just been so prophetic in so many ways to speak directly into our cultural uh, morass, just the craziness going on in our culture today. Uh, the series is called God of All Grace. We get that title from First uh, Peter 5, but today we're going to be in First Peter 2, and today we're going to learn how to submit as free people. This is what Peter wants to teach us. Now, Peter, the guy that we're reading about right now, he's a very different guy, decades later than the guy who leaped out of the boat at just the, his first opportunity. At the guy at Jesus' arrest who pulls a knife and cuts Malchus's ear off, which was the high priest's servant, this is a very different guy. He has been tempered by time. He has watched, I don't even know, I can't even guess how many fellow believers lose their life for the faith in this oppressive Roman government that believes that he is crazy that his faith system is illegal and that worshiping a dead and risen rabbi from Nazareth in Palestine is just insane. And so now what he is going to do as an elder statesman of the church is help us to understand how to live free, but then use our freedom as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of God in the midst of a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile toward us. The key to the passage that Pat just read is verse 21, if you're there. He says, for you were called to this, what? Suffering. You were called to look like Jesus, and Jesus is suffering. Cruciform suffering. You were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Follow in his steps. What steps? Submission. Jesus' life looked like a life of submission. The core thought of this passage is a life surrendered and submitted to God as ultimate authority, the supreme authority. And those authorities in human life, in human culture, that are sometimes just and sometimes not. Sometimes they aren't. What did Jesus' life look like? First of all, it looked like Christ's example of submission and obedience is so critical for us to understand. Because when we look at the tenor of Jesus' life, when we look at the entirety of Jesus' life, we would have to say this man lived a life of amazing submission to God's will. And it was first submission to parents. Children... Are you listening? You better. My kids are right back there. You better be listening too. This is not just a commandment in the Old Testament. This is the way Jesus did it. This is the way God does it. It's submission to the authority that God has put in your life. And the first person that God has put, the first system of government that God has put into your life is your family. God has instituted the human family, male and female, and he has brought those two people together to bring you up in a system where that is your government. 
That is your authority. And Jesus was submissive to his parents. He didn't have to be. Jesus is the son of God. He's God's incarnate son. And he, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2, funniest story in the New Testament. I think it is. Because in Luke chapter 2, it's the only picture of Jesus as a little kid. I wish we had 50 of these stories. I love them. But it's one little snapshot. It's one little glimpse of Jesus as a little kid. And what is he doing? He, he just is so innocent and pure. Just pure as gold. He forgot to go home with mom and dad after the festival. He's so enraptured by the word. He's so enraptured by the rabbi's teaching. He can't get enough. And mom and dad leave. They're in separate traveling parties because the men brought up the rear and they watched over the women as they went first. And then at the watering hole, halfway through the journey home back to Nazareth, Mary and Joseph met up and realized Jesus isn't with anyone. (laughs) So now they have to go back. They have to find Jesus. And where do they find him? Sitting in the temple courts. Solomon's portico. And where is he? He has smuggled himself into a little group of rabbi students. And his little kid is sitting there. And they watch him. And what do they find him doing? Asking questions. And the rabbi is going, yeah, that's a good question, kid. And, he's, and then finally, mom and dad come to get him, and, and the rabbi's like, hey, I think he's probably going to be a rabbi. <laughs> you know, like, I think, I think he probably might teach the Bible someday. And, uh, and then Mary pulls him aside and says, honey, you gave me a coronary. As a mom, you, would, you resonate with her. And so innocently, so pure, like translucent glass, he just says, oh, did you not know I was supposed to be in my father's house about my father's business? And she was like, you want to be coming home with your father right now. <laughs> and Luke 2.51 is the key. It says, and the boy was obedient to his parents. Jesus lived an obedient life. He lived obedient to the authority that God had placed in his life. And that's the family. Jesus also submitted to the rabbinic system of worship. Now, it is clear from his teachings when he becomes an adult that he is not a fan What is he not a fan of? He's not a fan of the chauvinism, the male orientation, the male dominance of the Jewish rabbinic leadership. He's not a fan of that because he treats women very well. He treats them the way that God had intended for them to be treated with honor and dignity. And he's not a fan of that. He's also not a fan of their pugilism. He's not a fan of their arrogance. He's not a fan of their hypocrisy. He sees the corruption. He sees how corrupt these guys really are. And he has to sit in synagogue every single Friday and Saturday and listen to this his entire life. He submits to the synagogue system. He doesn't have to, but he does. And he listens to men teach him who are not better men. And he knows they're not. He submits to the authorities of the land. I firmly believe that Jesus could have, when he was anointed by the Spirit and walking around and preaching in Galilee, I thoroughly believe that he could have just got fed up and just waved his hand and Herod would have dropped like a rock, like a sack of potatoes. Jesus had that power, but he doesn't do that. He submits to the authority in the land. At one point, Jesus was so popular. Jesus was so popular with multiple thousands of people showing up to hear his preaching and showing up to be touched by his power. Thousands of people on the hillside. 
No other Jewish revolutionary had ever gained this many followers. He could have instantly, he could have just with a few sermons, turned that crowd into a revolutionary movement and marched on Herod's palace. But he doesn't do that. He's an anti-revolutionary in fact, he says in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, if somebody takes your outer coat off, give them your shirt off your back as well. If a Roman centurion tells you, hey, you carry my pack home, carry it a mile, you offer to carry it too. If that same centurion whacks you in your face, you turn to him your other cheek. Jesus is an anti-revolutionary. He lives under the authority that God has placed him. And then he submits in the face of false accusations. Why? Because the Jews arrest him, and then they try him before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas says, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you God's son? And he said, you have said it. And here's the next time you're going to see me. Here's what it's going to look like. Daniel chapter 7. And they all know it very well. Because Daniel chapter 7 says, The Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days on a cloud of glory and receives all power and all authority. And then he goes back to the people and receives all worship from the nations. That's how you're going to see me the next time you see me. And Caiaphas goes, ah! And rips his robe and says, You can't say that in church. You can't say that to me. And orders him struck in his face. Blasphemy. That's the charge. Well, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, the charge sticks. It's true. He was a blasphemer, but if Jesus is, is, is who he says he is, if he is who he says he is, not only has he blasphemed their system, but he has not blasphemed God. He really is the son of man. He really is. And then he's hauled before Pilate. Pilate examines him head to toe, questions him. Jesus is just the most innocent, meek person. And Pilate comes out and says to the Jews, I don't find any basis whatsoever for crucifying this man. Now, we are talking about a bloodthirsty, ruthless Roman governor. This guy would put a Jew on the cross without flinching. If he thought they were a revolutionary, and he doesn't think Jesus is. So the, Trump, the charge is trumped up. It's false. Jesus endures false accusation. He submits to the authority and he goes to the cross. So Jesus, Jesus surrenders willingly to their authority. He is beaten within an inch of his life. He is nailed on a Roman high cross. And he gives up his last breath, committing his spirit to the Father and forgiving the people who did that to him. That's Jesus. That's the way Jesus does it. That's the way Jesus does it. In Peter's example, Peter decided he was going to follow Jesus' example. And how does he follow Jesus' example? He lives a life that is patterned after the suffering of the servant king. And then at the end of his life, the Roman authorities crucify him. And he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. Crucify me upside down. And they put his cross upside down and he, and he, and he died upside down, pinned to a cross. That's Peter. Peter lived what he is t telling us. Jesus is the master. You are the disciple. And a disciple is not above his master. And if the master gave himself willingly, if the master submitted and surrendered himself willingly, so should you. Because this is God's will. It's God's will for you to show the sterling character of obedience to God Almighty. Show the gospel in your life.
Here's what it looks like. It's Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Here's what Paul says. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same mindset, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, okay, so it doesn't get any higher in the social order than that, who, who being God himself, who existing in the very form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of a human being. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. There's that phrase, obedient again, even to, the death, on, uh, to death on a cross. For this reason, God has now highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and in hell under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' attitude of submission to authorities, to the death, was his act of obedience to the Father. And it was the Father's will that he be crushed for our sake. It was the Father's will that he be crushed for us. So Peter is going to tell us to submit to three people who could, who could in this text, be unjust. The first one is to human authorities. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. He says, submit to human authorities, individuals and places of authority over you. He says, slaves, submit to your masters. That's the text we just read. That doesn't sound fair, does it? So as to emulate the servant king himself. And wives, submit to your husbands. Now, we're going to cover, cover that next week. But you want to talk about a system of inequity? You want to talk about a system of oppression? We'll talk about that next week. What does it mean to submit? And you'll want to show up for that. But today we're looking at the first century issue of slavery. And how Christian slaves were to behave and interact with their earthly masters. He says in verse 21, For you were called to this because Christ Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now this is a generality. This does not cover all exceptions. But we're going to go through it. Because this is what it means to follow the footsteps of the master and to become like Jesus. But first you got to know something about ancient Roman slavery. Because when you and I say slavery, what do we think of? We think of slavery in the history of America. Don't we? In the history, really, of the Western world. That's what we think. But you really sort of need to unring that bell. you got to do that. Because you have to understand slavery from the perspective of the ancient world, and particularly ancient Rome. So there are three reasons why you might become a slave in the ancient world. It's very different than the way people became slaves in the chattel slavery system of the Americas. The first one is slaves of war. If Rome came to your country, Germania, or France, or England, or Palestine, if Rome came to your country and destroyed your country, or destroyed your temple the way they did in AD 70, they would haul the combatants, the people who, who went to war with them, they would haul the combatants and their families off to Rome, and you would be their slave. Now, I got to tell you, that was rough. According to historians like James Jeffers, that was a rough kind of slavery. That was going to be a rough life for you. That was going to be difficult. But then you also have the issue of legacy slaves. You could be born into the household of a slave. 
And by household, I just mean you could be born into the family of a slave. And there are times in the Roman world where these kinds of slaves were considered sons or daughters. Uh, As a matter of fact, remember the story of the Roman centurion who comes to Jesus and he begs Jesus, please come heal my servant. That servant is also called in the gospels, my son. Because that's how that Roman centurion saw him. So you could be a legacy slave born into the house of a master and into the house or in the family of a family of slaves. And you inherited their social status in your life. You could also experience debt slavery. This was the most common kind. Now, of all the population of the Roman Empire, one third of the population were slaves. This was the engine of the Roman economy. And particularly when a person became bankrupt because there were no social uh, net, social safety nets in the ancient world. If you took out a loan and your business went belly up and you couldn't repay it, then you became indentured to the person you took the loan from. And this is called indentured servitude. Uh, So this was probably the most common form of slavery in the ancient world because of bankruptcy. And so you had to indenture yourself because of your debt. And so here's what you need to know about the difference between Roman slavery and slavery in the Americas. Okay? This form of slavery was not racial. It was not not directed at a people group because of the color of their skin. It could be anybody. It was not endless in terms of its scope. It was not just forever. Forever. Okay, And it was not chattel slavery. So you usually had an opportunity to end your slavery by buying your way out of it or working hard enough to get out of slavery. And sometimes uh, Roman slave owners just didn't want to own you anymore. So they turn you out onto the street. So it was not endless in terms of scope and it was not chattel slavery. You were not considered a piece of cattle. That's not how they treated you. So when the Bible refers to slavery, it's not talking about what you and I know of In our history, it's talking about their situation, right? So, additionally, you could win your freedom in several ways, through a gladiatorial contest. If you were a good enough gladiator, you could win your freedom if the games were going. You could do that. You could pay off a life debt. You could pay your life debt off, and in five or six or ten years, you could be done. And you're set free then. Or voluntary manumission due to the master falling on hard times. So he just turns you on the street because he doesn't have the money to, to really take care of you anymore. And this happened in Rome several times in ancient Rome. And it caused great homelessness. The city of Rome itself was a city of absolute squalor. It was a, you would never want to live there. And it's because so many people had just been turned out onto the streets, Right? Now, this is very different than what you and I recognize. So, why doesn't Peter and Paul... So, Paul mentions slavery in the book of Philemon and to Timothy. And Peter right here mentions it. Be a good slave. Be a godly slave. Submit to your master. Why don't they say right here definitively, slavery is wrong and it needs to stop? Here's why. Because they were in absolutely no position politically to do that in this world. I want to show you quickly the pecking order. I want to show you the social order of Rome. Here it is. At the top, the class system of Greco-Rome was this. At the very, very top was the emperor. And that's only after Julius Caesar became emperor. But he was the very top. He was the divine God who had been revealed to the world. And his gospel was that he was the king of kings and lord of lords. And that's why they went to war with every state around them. 
because he was to be the king of those kings and the lord of those lords. Okay, so that's the emperor. He's top. The emperor also has a consul and a proconsul. Now, when Rome was a republic, they had a president and a vice president. What you and I think of, but these two people were different political parties, so they absolutely hated each other, and they just constantly went to war with each other. It was horrible. But they had essentially a president and a vice president, and then you had the senatorial class. If you were fortunate enough to have been born into the aristocracy that inherited wealth, inherited position, and, and were going to go into the Senate when your dad died off and you became the new senator, great, good for you. That's the third highest. And then the patrician class. Patrician class was the next highest. The equestrian class, that was the next highest. And then the plebeians. And all the way down were the freedmen. So if you were a manumitted slave, you could be a freedman. And it's great. You're not a slave anymore. Now, you're not, you can't be a citizen, but at least you're free. And under that, you have women. Sorry, women. No rights in this culture at all. None. Children, even less. And then slaves. Slaves are on the bottom, except for one more group. Christians. Christians. At this time, when Roman is... Rome is ruled by a Caesar, and that Caesar's name is Nero. A few years from now, the writing of this book, he will set fire to his own city and then blame the Christians for it. This guy is crazy. And so Christians, it is illegal to be a Christian. It's illegal. You worship a crucified Jew, which means you worship a person who has been judged by the Roman system as a criminal. That's illegal. Now, here's what you need to know. If you were a Christian and a freedman, that lowered your social status. If you were a Christian plebeian, that lowered your social status. Your Christianity would lower your social status. So Paul and Peter are in no position whatsoever to say to the Roman world, hey, stop that. (laughs) They, They can't. They have no political influence whatsoever in this world. The Christian faith was considered an illegal cult No power, no influence in this Roman world. But they had one thing going for them, the gospel. And the Christian faith was growing like a grass fire in high wind across the Roman world. And they had the value system of the gospel. And by the fourth century, just a few centuries later, Rome wrote into its law that a a believer who was a slave, could be manumitted, set free by a pastor who just performed, laid hands on them and performed a ceremony on them, on them and set them free. And so the upending of the slavery in the ancient world of Rome happened through the value system of Christianity. I want to read you some of those values. Here they are. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. He says, we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. Of course not. A righteous person doesn't need the law. He's self-governing. But for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers and for murderers. These sound like, this sounds like a great group of people here. Um, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which, is, which he has entrusted to me. So in this list, this vice list, what does he name? Slave trading. 
So the Christian faith did not make any political demands whatsoever on Rome. Here's what they did. They taught the values of the gospel. And Paul says slave trading is essentially evil. That value is there. 1 Corinthians 7, 20 through 22, here's what Paul says to them. He says, let each of you remain in the station to which he was called. That is that order I just read you. Were you called while being a slave? Don't be anxious. Don't let yourselves be anxious. But if you can become free, by all means, do take the opportunity to do so. So if there's a legal loophole, if there's an opportunity for you to better yourself, your social status, do it. Please do. For he who is, who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. And likewise, he who is called as a freedman is Christ's slave. So he says, it doesn't matter what your social situation is. If you find yourself as a slave, if you can get out of it, great. If you can buy your way out of it, super. But just know this, you've been set free by the grace of the Lord Jesus. In God's economy, you are free. You are free to Christ. And by the way, you are free for Christ. You belong to him. You're his servant in his house. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he goes on, although I am free. Now, Paul was a citizen of the 10% of people in this culture who had citizenship. Paul was one of these people. And he says, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a servant, a slave to everyone in order to win more people. He says, this is the way I, I evangelize people. This is how I do it. I'm a free person, and I surrender. I follow Christ. I submit. So when I'm among the Jews, man, I just, I just submit. I become like a Jew for their sake. When I'm among the Gentiles, I'll probably go have a beer. I probably will. I, I love people that God loves, and I'm going to surrender myself to their mores and submit to them so that I can win them because I, I've chosen to be a servant of God. Galatians 3.28 says, there is, not, there is no Jew or Greek, neither slave nor free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ. What is he saying? Of course there are male, male and female. Of course there's a Jew and a non-Jew. Anybody else who's not a Jew. Of course there are uh, slave and free. But these things are no longer social barriers for you. Christ has torn them down. And then in Galatians 5, 1, he said, It is for freedom that Christ has set us, set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's he talking about? Don't go back to circumcision. Don't go back to the works of Torah. Because God has given you grace in Christ Jesus. So don't enslave yourself again to a system that is obsolete. You see, they're talking about freedom in Christ. Colossians 3.11, again, he says, in Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. You're free. And then 1 Peter 2.16, he says, submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but servants of God. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for rebellion. Do you hear that? Don't use your freedom as a cover for your rebellious heart. Use your freedom as an opportunity to serve your fellow man, to serve them and give your life for them the way Christ Jesus would give his life for them. So here are the takeaways. Number one, regardless of one station in life, all people are enslaved to sin. So it doesn't matter what, what, what order or status you were born into the world, you're slave to sin. You and I come in as legacy slaves spiritually. You and I come into the world and... And we are born into a system where sin reigns the world. And how has sin enslaved us? 
Sin has enslaved us by, by causing us to become totally, completely depraved to its whims. Now, this is the doctrine of total depravity. If you've heard of that, it has gotten a bad rap. I want to explain to you what this doctrine is. The doctrine of total depravity means this, that every faculty of the human being has been touched, has been corrupted by sin. Every aspect of the human life has been corrupted by sin. And the Bible teaches now. Now, now total depravity does not mean that you're as bad as you possibly could be. What total depravity means is that your nature is such now that you could be as bad as you could be. <laughs> I mean, think of the heinous, crazy things that people do. There was a story in the, in the news last week of a guy who was a tech CEO, and they found his sister, found his body, hacked to death. Like, just cut up and dismembered. I'm sorry, that's nasty. But just dismembered in his apartment. And I read that story as much as that I could, and I thought, how can a human being do that? How can a person do that? So total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you possibly could be. It just means you're, you have a nature now that could become as bad as a human being could be. That's what it means. Every aspect of the human life has been touched by it cognitively. What do we mean by this? You, you, you're brain damaged. I mean, like, what that means is your cognitive capacity to think about God the right way has been diminished. It has. Your, your ability in your mind to think about God in a right way, in a truthful way, has been diminished. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. There are three times in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, 28, and 31, where he talks about a corrupted mind. Sin has corrupted the mind. Sin has caused the mind to become depraved, to crave things that are depraved. Sin has caused the mind, he uses the Greek word, senseless or stupid. Sin will make you stupid. And it doesn't matter how many degrees you have on your wall. It doesn't matter if you're the most brilliant brain surgeon or neuroscientist or engineer that has ever graced the face of the earth. Somehow sin, you could be brilliant in that field, but then somehow sin diminishes our ability to see the world as God's creation. God created this place. And when you and I look at the world, the most natural instinct of the heart, the most obvious conclusion that we can make about the world is very, is very simple. Somebody created this world. Somebody of enormous power, unfathomable knowledge, somebody who knew what they were doing, it is God. But sin diminishes our ability to see that. And then morally, the moral faculty distinguishes between good and evil. The, the, the longer our culture goes completely untethered, broken away from the moorings of truth, the more I see good being called evil and evil being called good. It happens more and more every day. My wife showed me a story. I don't even know if I can repeat it. But she showed me something last week. I was like, no way. That's, that's CarrieSnopes.com, honey. You know what I mean? <laughs> like she showed me that. And then I looked at it and went, no, that's really a thing. That's, that's really a thing. I, I couldn't in my lifetime believe that that is happening in our culture. But good is being called evil and evil is being called good. It's because we are morally depraved in sin. Sin also affects us spiritually. You know what I think is the most beautiful part of the whole garden story? 
I love all the high theology in it. I love how God is like sovereign king, and he's decreeing, and things are coming into being. I love that part of the story. But you know what I love the most? I love that moment where it says, and God came, and he was walking with the man and the woman in the cool of the garden. That is fellowship. That's communion. That's unfettered access to the high beams of heaven's glory. That's what we had. We had that. And now that's gone. Sin sin has put a barrier between us and God. Sin has said, no, you can't have access to that anymore. And you see people practicing the occult. You see people practicing paganism. The new pagans, holy smokes. The new polytheists. I mean, it's going on. People are trying to find through spiritism, through spirituality, that they are exercising a God-given want, a God-given desire to find God somehow, but but they can't apart from Christ. They cannot, but they were designed to. They were designed to want that. Spiritually, we have been diminished, incapacitated. And then physically, obviously, we're going to die. Obviously, sin has resulted in our death. Not just death relationally or spiritually, but I mean death physically. You, you die, you go into the grave. Apart from Christ Jesus and the resurrection at the end of the world, you are not coming back. Not, not in this state. The resurrection is our promise, but after sin, we physically die. And then socially, look at the world. It does not matter how much they want, people want to get on the same page with the kumbaya, man. That doesn't matter. I mean, you, it doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not you are one body in Christ, made of many members, diverse members, and you have come to the Lord, and you are part of this family, and you can be a black person, part of this family, sitting next to your white brother or sister, part of this family, and it doesn't matter. What matters is that you and I, as diverse people groups, we have come into one body through Christ. That's only available in Christ. But sin has destroyed our society. Sin has given us deep, profound factions. And nobody can solve it apart from Jesus. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And Paul said, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Christ set you free from that so you can be free from sin. And regardless of your sociopolitical status, regardless of your ethnicity, the color of your skin, how much money you have, you are born into a system where you are enslaved to sin. Number two, regardless of one's station in life, all people are freed by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Amen. Yeah, so you can be free. You can be free. Let me ask you a question. You know how many slaves are still in the world right now? You know how many? Between 30 and 40 million. There's between 30 and 40 million people in the world today, in our modern world, who are still enslaved. Let me ask you another question. In the history of the world, of all the cultures that have practiced slavery, when did slavery, when, when were slaves emancipated in a culture? Abraham Lincoln. The emancipation of slaves is a Christian Western worldview. It's a, now, it took us a long time to catch up with the, with the ideals of it, that's for sure. But it's a Christian, Western Christian worldview. Now, let me ask you this. What culture in the world today is working tirelessly through uh, charitable organizations to rid the world of slavery today? What culture? Christian Western culture. We're not perfect. We got a checkered past, but we're on the forefront right now. Why? 
Because it's these values right here. Because we believe as Christians that all men are created equal and all men are set free in Christ to be free. So when you come to Jesus, how are you set free? Cognitively. Let's go through that again. Is that fun? You look so excited. Yes. <laughs> Cognitively. Paul says this. This is a beautiful passage. Write this down. You should read it later. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, up until this point, no one. <laughs> Except Adam. That he may instruct him. But we, we, the Christians, we have the mind of Christ. What is his whole point for 1 Corinthians chapter 2? Stop messing up. Because you have the Holy Spirit in your life. And when you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you have the mind of Christ available to you to inform you what the wise path is. And the wise path is to love and serve others. Submit. You and I have the mind of Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed. Renew your mind. What? In the truth. You and I can renew our minds. We can think like God. We can think God's thoughts about the world. And then morally, Jesus sets us free from the enslavement of our moral incapacity. All of a sudden, now you and I have the ability to see with morally clear eyes. The lenses are clear. The first thing the Holy Spirit of God does when he comes into your life, the very first thing he does, according to Jesus in the book of John, in the gospel of John, is he brings conviction and judgment. Why does he bring conviction and judgment? Yeah, you tell me why. Mask man. In his kindness to lead us to repentance or what? Judgment. <laughs> right? So he brings us conviction over sin. And the very next thing he tells us is it's because you, judgment is coming. Like judgment is coming. So he convinces us that we are all going to stand before God. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God to us. He is God's gift to us. Why? To convict us of our sin and tell us judgment is sure. We are going to stand and give an account to God. And then to cleanse us. And so we can see with morally clear eyes. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 4 through 6. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with moral excellence. What a glorious church. What a glorious church that is saved by grace through faith alone. And then says, ah, with morally open eyes, we can live according to the value system of heaven. And then spiritually, where once we were relationally dead, now we are relationally alive Romans 6, 11, he says, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now you're dead to sin, but you used to be dead in sin. You used to be dead in sin and you were separated from God. And now you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. Live with life. Have the life of God coursing through you. Spiritually, you and I can walk in the cool of the garden again. You can walk with God. You, my, I love my little mama. My little southern mama, she lives in South Florida. Um, she's scared of COVID-19 right now. <laughs> and uh, she said she's totally retired. And I was talking to her the other day. Her COVID-19 test came back. Praise God she didn't have it. And she said, honey, you know what I love about being retired? I said, what do you love? She said, I love it that I could just get up and read my Bible. <laughs> Every day, just make some notes and talk to Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. I said, Mom, I know you love Jesus, right? But that's what I love about my mom. Like, she just ministered to me on the phone. You know why? 
because she walks with God every single day. My mom walks in the cool of the garden with the Father, and you can have that. You can be a Christian, and you can know that spiritual life and connection, reconnection with the Lord. And physically, Jesus promised the churches in Revelation this cool promise. It's chapter 2, verse 7. He says, I will give the right to eat of the tree of eternal life, which stands in the paradise of God. Where have you seen that image before? What tree of life? Where? In the garden. Why? Because we're human beings. And if you don't eat, you die. And God gave us not only trees to eat, but he gave us something called the tree of life. And when you not eat of it, it sustains human life in perpetuity. It sustains human life forever. And then when the man sins and he is exiled from the garden, what does God have to do? He has to post an angel there to say, you can't eat here anymore. You can't eat this anymore because you can't just physically live forever in your sin now. But when you come to Christ, you not only get the promise of a resurrected body, you get the tree of life again. You and I in the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. Praise God. And then socially, we are the one place, I said this last week, we're the one place on earth where we have we are a family made up of so many diverse parts and people groups. We just did unity in the community yesterday. And you may think that Idaho Falls is the whitest, blandest place you have ever been. But those churches that were there yesterday were very different. And it was a blessing. It was, it was hilarious and fun. It was beautiful. And it honored God. And it was super uncomfortable. <laughs> like it just was, you know? <laughs> But socially, we come together, we're so different, and then, but, but we are unified at the cross. You know what the tree of life is? It's right behind me. That's the tree of life. It's that cross that Jesus died on, because when you and I embrace that death, we have life. We have life. And these are the values, these are the virtues, that are like a ticking time bomb in this ancient Roman culture. Nero doesn't know this, but there is a movement. There is a people. There are values and there are godly virtues according to the gospel that is like a ticking time bomb to his crazy, whack, Greco-Roman culture. And he doesn't know it's coming. And it's a quiet, subtle revolution of change, and it will change the world, it will upend the world, it will turn the world upside down. Now, that's the history that's the baseline. That's the foundation. Next week, we're going to pull some application out of this passage. Next week, we're going to talk about what does it look like now for human relationships to be in submission to one another? What does it look like for us to be submitted to one another, even in cases where you're experiencing injustice? What does it look like when you want to assert your rights? You can't. You're living in an unjust system. What is the pattern of Christ? We're going to talk about that next week. And how should the Christians respond? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, what a privilege to be able to assemble as the family, the household of Almighty God. And Lord, we are here this morning. We have submitted ourselves to the truth of this book, the truth of the word that you have left us, and the wisdom of Peter. And God, we are here today to pray for our nation this morning. We want with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind to be your servants and to serve our community and to love them. But Lord, we pray for them. We pray for our community and we pray for our state and we pray for our nation and our world. God, we want people who are enslaved to sin. People who don't know you. People who have not been born anew by the power 
of heaven. God, we want them to know you. And so, so Lord, we lift them up to you right now. God, would you convict our nation of its sin and its rebellion? Would you convict our community of its darkness of seeking false gods? Would you commit, convict us, Lord, and help us, Lord, as we commit ourselves to prayer? And if you're here this morning and you're a slave to sin, you don't have to be anymore. You don't have to think wrongly anymore. You don't have to think wrongly about what is morally right and what is morally wrong. You don't have to be separated from God anymore. And you don't have to have the anticipation that when you die, you're just going in the ground and that's it. You can have eternal life and a life that is transformed by the power of eternity. Would you just surrender right now? The Holy Spirit is present in this place. Confess your sins. Confess that you're a sinner, a slave to sin, and ask Jesus for freedom. Ask him for freedom. Cry out to him. Confess what is true. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead to save you from your sins. Would you embrace the tree of life? Embrace the tree of life. Embrace it. Because his death is your life. Would you do it? Oh, God. We seal this moment. All together we say amen.